Welcome to The Mindful Apprentice, brought to you by Swindon and Wiltshire Institute of Technology. In this podcast series, we want to share stories and information to help everyone make the apprenticeship a success, whether you're an employer or the apprentice. We've interviewed a wide range of apprentices, employers, specialists, charities and clinicians to make this series. Wherever you're listening, we hope you'll find it helpful. Hello, I'm Dominic Arkwright. Today, more about neurodiversity and how it can play out for apprentices in the workplace. Our guide again is Sarah Hendricks, author of several books on autism and also diagnosed with autism and dyslexia herself. But if, if we think about the diagnostic criteria for autism, in, in simple terms, it's people, it's change and it's the environment. It's those three things. And so what we might find is that if an autistic person is alone and nothing is changing and they're in an environment which is calm and pleasant, such as their bedroom or up a mountain or something, arguably you're no longer autistic. In the context of a, of a social world, you're, you're, you're fine. There's no one to talk to. Nothing's upsetting you by being too flexible or adaptable and the environment's not overwhelming you at all. You're, you're happy, you're fine. The issues come for autistic people when there's some engagement or connection with the rest of the world who are far more sociable in terms of people, who are far more flexible in terms of change and who are far more tolerant in terms of all of the sensory environmental factors that, that go on around us, such as smell and touch and taste and noise and visual and all of that kind of thing. So the issue comes for an autistic person with their particular requirements and patterns of those three things in a world which has been designed by the rest of the people who have completely different parameters for those three things. So, for example, in a world where people like variety, they like change, they want things to be different and not stay the same and not repetitive, then an autistic person comes along and says, well, I'm, I'm quite happy having my tuna sandwich for lunch. Thank you very much. That's my thing. Having my tuna sandwich makes me feel quite safe. I know what I'm going to get. It's predictable. It's the same bread. It's the same... Tupperware that I have it in, I have it at the same time. This very much might suit an autistic person. The problem comes when that person goes out for lunch with someone else and there is no tuna sandwich. So the autistic person then appears to be perhaps agitated, perhaps unreasonably stressed simply by the lack of a tuna sandwich when perhaps the people that they're with are saying, oh, we'll just choose something else. What's the problem? There's no problem here. But for that individual, there's a big problem because that involves decision-making. It involves abstract thought. What will it be like to have something else in your mind lunch? It involves the sensory experience being different, that you know what the texture and the flavour is of your tuna sandwich. So now I'm going to have to think about, well, what about if I have a chicken sandwich? What might that be like? There's also a whole bunch of communication stuff in there where you you may appear a bit rude or abrupt because you're surprised by the lack of your tuna sandwich unexpectedly. So just briefly on the subject of tuna sandwiches, you could see how an autistic person may appear to be inflexible, to be rude, to be you know, oversensitive if you like, making a fuss. 
about something which for them may be a real cornerstone for their feeling of safety and comfort in a world that's eternally noisily changing and full of people. So what if you're the colleague who's with the person having a tuna sandwich crisis? And remember, this is an analogy and applies to different situations, different upsets to routine and the general order of things. We perhaps might need to ask the person, um, you know, what, what they might prefer. So it might be that we think about, if, if they want your support, obviously, it might be that you think about, okay, what is it about the tuna sandwich that's that's so good? Is it is it the flavour? Is it the texture? Is it the fact that it's a sandwich and that you can eat it easily with your hands? You don't need a knife and fork if you're a bit clumsy or whatever. So we might start to think about, are there any alternatives that we could manifest in some way that would, would be close enough for that person to, to find acceptable for them? It could be that that person prefers to eat nothing rather than have an alternative. That, that would be very typical and so common. We might be able to think about whether that person could at least have a bag of crisps. It might be that we move completely away from sandwiches and, and think about well, what other things are, are okay for you. Is there another place we could visit that might have a tuna sandwich? It's understanding and not judging, I think, is the fundamental thing to do, is, is, to, is to not just go, oh, for goodness sake, just get over yourself, choose something else. That, that for that person, for a range of reasons, um, making decisions on the spot, coping with, with unexpected changes, that could be a really big deal, even though I'm sure it sounds perhaps a bit ridiculous. So the message is that neurodiversity requires a different approach from what might be appropriate for other people. In another programme, Sarah told us about the number of jobs she'd had and left, often because her autism magnified issues that people without autism might not see as a problem. But there's a wide range of challenges that may arise for people who do have autism, or for that matter, ADHD and many other conditions. Just not understanding hierarchy, not understanding authority, not understanding the social rules. Can I say something? Is that okay for me to say something? I've been bullied a lot, teased a lot. Um, just not fitting in. I, I don't do office politics. I'm not very good at small talk. Um, again, a lot of autistic people say, I didn't come here to make friends. I came here to do the job. And yet, for a lot of non-autistic people, the social element of their job just is very important to them. They build relationships with their colleagues. And if you're the person who's not doing that, you, you don't make everyone a cup of tea, you don't have a chat in the kitchen, you don't go out for lunch with people because actually at lunchtime you just need to sit in a dark corner and have a rest. You can quickly become ostracised in an organisation and quickly become scapegoated in a, and everybody will kind of gang up on you because you're perceived to be antisocial when all you're actually really trying to do is just get through the day and do your job. I fear saying it because it ends up sounding horribly arrogant, but at times I have been in jobs where I, I have been able to work so quickly that I will pretend that I haven't finished my work because it seems to upset other people. I think for them it feels like it's reflecting on them that somehow you're showing them up simply by working at your own pace and in your own way. So it feels like I, I've certainly had to kind of pretend to be busy 
um, in order to allow other people to catch up so that I don't make them feel bad about themselves. If you know you need to be outdoors and moving around constantly because you have ADHD, for example, don't go work in an office. That might not suit you well. If sitting in the classroom was difficult, then sitting in an office will be worse because you'll be doing it for longer each day. So, you know, it's trying to think about your own past experiences and get input from other people who will honestly say to you, look, I know you'd love to do that, but you're just not going to last five minutes because, you know, these aspects of it will be really, really hard for you to, to, to overcome. But also I think if you do make mistakes and it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter. You've got the rest of your life to have another go. It's there's, you know, I think people can be very hard on themselves and feel like they failed, but, but really it doesn't matter. Okay. The question now is what can or should my workplace do if I am neurodivergent? You are entitled to what are called reasonable adjustments in order to allow you to do your job um, and kind of level the playing field with, with your colleagues in terms of doing your job. So legally, that would be required for, for an employer to, to have that conversation with you. They cannot tell everybody else in the organisation that you have this condition. Um, it is a private disclosure unless you choose. As a, a person with a diagnosis, you get to select who knows about it. So I would advise people to, to go to their HR person, make the disclosure, and then ask what the process is for having a conversation and having um, determining what reasonable adjustments might be required for someone. Obviously, small businesses don't have HR departments. So you would have to find a manager or a, or a person who could put this, this kind of process in place. The general point is, you should expect your workplace to make some adjustments for you. There's also a lot of help available online. There's a ton of stuff online these days. TikTok, um, YouTube, where lots of young autistic people are talking about their experiences. If you find yourself slamming your hands over your ears every time the bell goes off, if you find yourself unable to concentrate because the clocks are ticking, those are the kind of things that can be changed. You can wear noise-cancelling headphones. You can ask, as a reasonable adjustment, that all of the clocks in your building are changed to clocks that don't tick. Those tiny, tiny things to most people might be an absolute game-changer for, for you. So I think it's really about recognising signs in yourself, that if you're dreading going into work, if you're sick, if you can't eat, if you're taking, you know, prescription medication, just to be able to get through the door. If there's certain people there that fill you with, with terror. If you just can't speak out for yourself, feeling depressed, uh, feeling completely wiped out. You might start to think this is not normal and this is not how I'm going to live my working life. It's not sustainable. You will be ill at, at some point and... You can't start like that in your career. That's just ridiculous. So I think if you start to recognize those sorts of things, you then have to think, okay, are there any particular things that are causing those? Is it that I'm thinking, oh my God, that noise is going on all, all the time in the warehouse and it's draining me the, the whole time? Is it that I have to have my lunch in the canteen, which is very loud? People are talking. 
that I have to have a conversation with somebody while I'm eating my lunch, but actually I could do with a little nap at lunch break to, to, to get some, uh, you know, rebuild some energy. Is it when people throw things at me with no advance notice? It's starting to kind of think about what your individual triggers are, if you like, and then starting to think about small solutions to those. And certainly disclosing to other people, either formally, informally, is a way to get other people to understand and, and give you a few concessions so that you can say to them, look, the reason I don't come to the canteen for lunch is, is because it's way too noisy for me. So, you know, please forgive me, but I'm just, I'm just going to go sit in the car park or whatever. So it gives people context. It's not, why are they so rude? Why don't they ever sit with us? It's like, oh, okay, they find this a bit hard, so they'll, they'll go sit out there. Maybe one of them will come sit in the car park with you, and that might be an easier social relationship for you. It's important to educate the employer, because sometimes they're thinking, well, this is just bonkers. Why am I spending 500 quid replacing clocks? I, I, you know, This person's behaving like a prima donna or something. The benefit to you is that that person will be off sick legs, they'll be much more productive, they'll be far less stressed, and they'll have better concentration because those ticking clocks are not taking up all of their mental capacity. For example, a woman who worked in a large call centre, um, the organisation then decided to go to hot desking. And hot desking for a lot of neurodiverse people is highly problematic because you walk into the room each morning and there may be 50 or 100 desks in there and you don't know where you're going to be sitting. The problem with not knowing where you're sitting is that you might get lost quite easily in the room because suddenly you're in a different corner. You don't know where the photocopier is. You don't know where the toilets are. The aircon unit might be over your head. The lighting might be different than it was yesterday. For some autistic people, they struggle to recognize faces outside of context. So suddenly you're looking for a colleague in a sea of 50 faces and you don't know where they are either. So for this particular person and, and a lot of autistic people, hot desking was just out of the question and, and she, she immediately went, went off sick for a very long time with, with stress and anxiety. So we managed to negotiate for her to have a fixed desk, and that was very unusual, but it was considered that that would be um, a good adjustment for, for, for her to have. The company also went to flexi-working, so the shift patterns were different each week. We also negotiated for her to have a fixed work pattern so that she knew exactly day after day when she would begin and when she would end because the constant change in the work pattern um, was just way, way too flexible for her. So they can be little adjustments, but make a big difference. Oh, life-changing. I mean, completely, completely. The ability for someone to be at work or not be at work. I mean, it's, it's that stark for some people. Or, you know, or to not be having migraines every day or all of those kind of things. Uh, there's lots of software you can get for computers, um, speech-to-type software. If somebody struggles with you know, writing quickly, Buying somebody a dictaphone so that if they're in meetings, that they can record the meeting and then process it afterwards. Because some people find that lots of voices going on all at the same time, they can't join in, they can't hear, they can't process. So a little cheap, or even on your phone, you could do it now, a little, a little voice recorder. 
comfy chair. If you know, if if people have issues about sitting still, giving them a swivelly chair so that they can swing backwards and forwards while they're at work. Digit toys. There's a lot of cheap stuff out there that uh, that is done routinely. Some excellent analysis and advice from author Sarah Hendricks. So if you are having difficulties in the workplace because of neurodiversity, there is a lot that can be done to help. And if it isn't offered, don't be afraid to ask. That's all for now. Until next time, I'm Dominic Arkwright. Stay well. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Mindful Apprentice. We hope you found something in it which was helpful to you or perhaps a colleague or friend, whether you're a new starter or a seasoned professional. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in the podcast or want to find out more about organisations which can provide help and support, go to sawiot.ac.uk forward slash The Mindful Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs>